Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to My Healthcare Crew. Thanks for joining me today uh, on another episode of the NHS 100K podcast with me, Matt Taylor. So today I am joined with Dr. Claire Craig, who is uh, a pathologist and also a member of, of the Heart Group, which we'll talk about more later on. Um, she's been involved in lots of different stuff, but I won't steal her thunder too much and I'll kick it over to you. So how are you doing, Doctor? Thank you for joining me today. Thanks very much for having me, Matt. Yeah, um, so just, and I think not everybody will necessarily know what a pathologist is, so let me just explain a little. Um, I think some people associate pathology with post-mortems because you see that on the telly, and it is pathologists who do do post-mortems, but the, the breadth of pathology work really is in the laboratory. So we're the doctors that sort out diagnostic tests. And um, personally, I'm specialised in cancer diagnosis, and that's what I worked with in the NHS for years. And after leaving the NHS, I went and worked on the 100,000 Genomes Project, doing cancer diagnostics in a more centralised way, working with Public Health England and on NHS data. Um, and I've also worked a little bit with artificial intelligence in cancer diagnosis up until, um, up until May 2020, when I stopped working. And um, I was locked down as we all were and I have four children so I was quite busy with them um, and it wasn't until they went back to school really that I started digging into Covid and started to sort of look at it from a different perspective and um, started what I've been doing for the last few, two years which is just researching without being paid by anyone for doing it and publishing um, on Twitter mainly, but in other ways, and then now co-chairing Heart, so that we have some scientists out there who are working on the, the you know established evidence that we've had over decades, um, challenging some of the new assumptions that have been made. Okay, so what got you going down the the route um, of wanting to look into the to the COVID data initially? I mean, I know we all we all have our own sort of triggers for what happened, but what was it that made you want to start looking into the actual data that was coming out early on in the um, the uh, pandemic? So um, I you know I paid attention to what was going on, um, but hadn't looked at any of it in depth, and I was scared in spring twenty twenty, um, and I. Um, was reassured when the evidence came out of the diamond princess a bit and so I, my, my fear started to be more about my parents and and the population as a whole rather than about me personally um but it, it was really the summer of 2020 when you know the spike had passed and we were seeing this trickle of cases and deaths every day that didn't seem to go away and when you are an expert in testing that sends up red flags to say this might just all be testing errors and so that's what I wanted to dig into so when the kids went back to school that's what I started digging into this question of how many of these cases and deaths were the same as what we'd seen in spring and what I did was just look at what it meant to be a case or a death so there were characteristics of Covid that you could would leave signals in the data so if you remember back in spring 2020, it was more men that were dying from COVID. And it was 60% men. So it's not, you know, all men, but it was definitely more men that were dying. And there were um, more people who were black who were in ITU and dying as well. 
and other ethnic minorities. There were, um, there were other signals in diabetes and hypertension that we didn't have as much data for. Um, and there were, the mortality rate itself was a signal. So um, if, it's, if you have a genuine COVID diagnosis, then a high proportion of people relatively die of it. But when you've got test results that are actually artifactual, then a much lower proportion are going to die after that because they, they haven't actually got the disease. So those are the points that I went and dug into um, to sort of explore that question. And I was completely naive because I just thought, oh, look, they've, they've missed this point. You know, they, they didn't have any um, diagnostics advisors on stage. They've missed this point. I'm just going to highlight that this is wrong. They'll fix it and we'll move on. That's what I thought would happen. And, um, and I sort of come across people since who similarly found something just in their area of expertise and who were sort of were equally naive about what might happen if they started talking about it. And obviously, having talked about it, I, this door opened into a world of other experts who've had concerns all the way along in their area of expertise um, and a world of people who had all sorts of other concerns, which I then started to learn about um, and try to understand. And um, so I just carried on publishing and carried on trying to um, make sure that other voices were heard. Um, and, you know, we've had some wins along the way. So um, there was a point early on when um, one of the problems with the testing was that people were testing positive after they'd been infected for quite some period of time. And actually, we know now that that's because of the nucleic acid becoming integrated in the DNA. So until those cells have shed from your respiratory tract, you're going to keep testing positive. And, and it didn't make sense to people because we knew that RNA doesn't last very long. So how could you keep testing positive? And because it didn't make sense to people, they were sort of denying the fact that people were still testing positive. You know, so I don't think you should really deny something just because you can't explain it. And we can explain it now. Mm. Um, but it was through really pushing the point that people were testing positive and these were, you know, this, these were people who were in hospital for other reasons who were still being called COVID cases just because of a positive test result. Um, and then eventually the authorities kind of gave in and now it's established everywhere that you don't keep testing for that 90 day window after you've had an infection because you'll have a positive test and it means absolutely nothing. And I, I don't know if you remember back in summer of 2020, there were three British lads who went to teach English in Italy and they, um, on the way back, I think they actually did catch COVID. Um, but on the way back, they had to test to get their flight home and they were positive and they got put into this quarantine hotel where they couldn't even see each other. They were just talking to each other on their mobile phones and they kept testing positive day after day after day after day. And they were just in prison because of this positive test. Um, and the people around them could see that it was nonsense. They weren't unhealthy. There was nothing, you know, they'd already had COVID. But but somehow there was this sort of bureaucratic wall where you just couldn't get through to letting these people go home. And there wasn't even that sort of political drive that they would normally have if somebody's incarcerated in another country. And they were just sort of abandoned. But eventually, um, I think eventually, they tested negative. That was how they, I think, they got them out. Or they changed the rules so they only had to have one negative, and then they just said, "I'll just go." Um, anyway, another win that's a bit more recent was around vaccinations 
not reduce um, not reducing infections the way that they were sold so at the beginning we were sold this idea that they were hugely protective and it's really only been through people shouting as loudly as they can for as long as they could about the data about the evidence until now it's pretty well accepted that they're not reducing infections and um you know that wouldn't happen without people shouting about it as much as we could until it just becomes undeniable because up until that point they were denying it they were denying a lot of things up until that point i think as well which is uh, that's a story for another day but so what so obviously your job is to, it's essentially to, to pluck out the data and things and, and you, you publish certain things but um I remember following you quite early on, and I remember you being one of the very first people to congratulate me on on speaking out um, on the issues of, of the um, the uh, mandates that were coming in. Sorry, my black uh, the mandates that were coming in, and uh, uh, my video and things. So it was it was kind of heartening to to see someone on the other side of the fence that was recognizing the need for people to talk out about these sorts of things. But how did you find after publishing your work? What were you? What kind of reception were you met with? Um, yeah, so there was this, there was this real welcome from some people. So there was this. I sort of joined a community of people who were really supportive, which was lovely. There were, I, I had this sort of crazy belief, looking back, that by speaking out, I might encourage other people to also raise concerns. And that just really hasn't happened. So I now know a whole load of professionals who will talk to me about their concerns, but they wouldn't ever say anything in public. And um, I think that's, I can't I understand it. You know, I, I do understand it, but it's terribly sad and frightening that that's where we're at, that people, you know, even when they've got huge concerns about patient care, they've got huge concerns about the effect on society, They've got huge concerns about the future. And you think, well, what, what, what's enough to make you speak out if those things aren't? Um, so yeah, when people like you did, I was absolutely ready to get in touch and congratulate you and thank you and encourage you because it is it does take bravery, it really does. And, um, and it, there's also that thing about reaching a tipping point, isn't there, that, that we've been waiting for for a long, long time, but these, things grow and at some point people feel that they can join it and that's a different point for everybody but it can only grow I mean it's been quite obvious uh interesting discussing these certain topics with different people because there seems to be a real heavy female presence in the um mm. in the people wanting to speak out against the narrative now the the the, the people behind the NHS 100k they're all female um so it's been quite interesting that there's um i often joke that we need some more guys in here um <laughs> because there's there's not enough men that seem to be coming forward and being as vocal about it as, as the women so i found that quite interesting from a psychology perspective um but i might I, 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 I did you find it as frustrating as i did that your colleagues were were just not prepared to speak about it discuss it speak out about it or anything at all um did you find it as frustrating as I did? Um, well, there have been moments where it has been really frustrating, you know, especially when the when the mandates were coming to a head and you knew that there were huge numbers of healthcare professionals who were affected. And there were also huge numbers of healthcare professionals who had been vaccinated. 
who also thought this was absolutely wrong, who weren't speaking out. And um, and I mean, I think that the the fact is that this was true across the world. It wasn't true just here. And just in the UK, obviously, there's essentially one employer for healthcare workers. And so given that people were too scared to speak out in places where they had different employment opportunities, you can understand why people would be too scared to in a place where there is essentially only one. Um, and, and when people have spoken out and have been reported to the GMC and sometimes have had their licenses suspended for it, which has absolutely happened to people, um, and in ways that really I just don't, I've never understood the justification for why that happened to the people it's happened to. So people like, I mean, I haven't read all the details, but people like Dr. Adil, who's the colorectal surgeon who was um, suspended two years ago for saying that social distancing wouldn't work and that the vaccines weren't going to be some kind of panacea. And you look back at that now and think, well, what, what was going on? that made them thought that was a suspendable offence and he's still not reinstated. And maybe, there's, you know, I don't know all the details, as I said, but that just seems so wrong. And obviously there's also Sam White, who's, you know, he said children shouldn't be vaccinated and masks don't work and, and then was suspended from working. And what he's also found and other doctors have also found is that as well as the GMC, um, who obviously are there to keep patients safe and to protect the profession in, in terms of its reputation um, and who are um, <clears throat> made up of other fellow doctors. So I mean, that's the idea that you're regulated by your peers and, and so that's the agreement that we've had that's worked for a long, long time. But these doctors were finding that there's this parallel system that we didn't know about where the NHS um, who have a, you know, perhaps rightly say, well, we get to decide who we employ. Um, and so they have an, an NHS approved providers list and people who are not doctors and who are not these people's peers are deciding that they're not fit to practice and are sort of striking people off in a parallel way, um, which seems wrong to me. Um, and I think people are, um, I think the GMC and the NHS are acting as if these are, you know, that this the impact that they're having on these doctors' lives is somehow trivial or doesn't matter, and that's just ridiculous. You know, it obviously has an enormous impact. But moreover, it has an enormous impact on people's ability to speak about concerns that they have. And that is incredibly dangerous. If you have a culture in which people can't raise concerns, then awful things can happen. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it was it was fairly obvious early on to see that that was the kind of general consensus that they wanted to portray to everybody was if you spoke out against the narrative, regardless of the evidence, the proof or whatever a lot of doctors had physically seen, um, if it didn't go, you know, with the current narrative, that was it. You were, you know, shunned, embarrassed, hit pieces done on your chastised, stopped from practicing. Um, so it wasn't very encouraging for you guys to 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 still, you know, to continue to speak out. Um, so one thing I wanted to touch on, um, now we've got a rough idea of, so we spoke about this briefly last week on the phone. So cycle thresholds and PCR testing. Uh, so I'm sure there'll be lots of people listening to this going, oh, so you, from the horse's mouth, can you explain to me 
what the cycle threshold is, what it would mean if the cycle threshold was too high, uh, and, and obviously the findings and the issues that you were having doing the PCR testing in the labs that you worked in. Okay, so um, cycle thresholds take a little bit of explanation. So let me just explain the process. So when you have a sample, it will have RNA and also have other other bits and bobs in it, other, including DNA, but the PCR test only works on DNA. So you transfer it into DNA. And then what PCR does is it doubles the DNA in that sample with every what are called cycles. You might have heard of cycles being done. So you do a cycle, it doubles the DNA and you do a cycle, it doubles it again. So you end up with exponential growth amount of DNA in that sample. And um, all the while that you're doing these doublings, you're also measuring the sample for how positive it is. And, and what will happen is there'll be a variety of a, a, a tray of samples that go into the machine. And so you'll have a measure for each of the wells in the plate of samples, and it will come out as a graph. So you'll see a graph with a y-axis and an x-axis and a line that shows how positive that sample was with each of the cycles along that x-axis. And there'll be a positive control and a negative control in there as well. So you'll have one that really shouldn't have any positivity and one that should be really high. And in the past, the scientists would look at that graph and they would decide based on the positive control and the negative control, and also based on any samples that to their eye were clearly positive because they were rising exponentially and getting to a high positivity they would decide where to draw a horizontal line on the graph that would become the threshold. And any sample that reached that threshold would be considered positive. So you might also have some samples that were going up a bit, but sort of linearly that you think, well, I better make sure that's negative. So you put it above those ones. And then with each sample that was in the plate, you'd see where it, the positive line had hit the threshold and how many cycles it had had at that point. And so that's the cycle threshold, is how many cycles it took to get to that threshold. And um, it'll depend a little bit on which machine you're using and which lab's doing it. So it's not a number that you can just transfer from place to place, but it's still a number that you can calibrate and try to understand what it means a bit better. Now, at the very beginning, when they were setting up testing, I mean, we already had labs that did PCR, we already had the machines, and it was just a question of changing the nucleic acid sequence that was being looked for. And, you know, with a certain amount of time pressure, I think it's reasonable to get testing set up and running without having thoroughly calibrated it. But calibration is the next step. And it took a long time before data on calibration came out. It wasn't really until summer of 2020. And even then, it was from a handful of labs around the world that had done it. And what they did to calibrate it was to take the samples and to see which of those samples had virus in that could get into a selling culture and disrupt that cell. And um, if a virus, if there's enough virus to do that, then that um, is related to that sample being an infection risk. And obviously that's what you're testing for ultimately is, is this an infection risk? So when you did that calibration and you said, well, which of these samples actually infect people, then you'd find that by the time you're up at sort of 35 as a cycle threshold, then you've already got practically, the, 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 from then on, 
there's barely any that are infectious. And once you're going into the high 30s, they're enough. Um, whereas the counter to that is that around 25 is where you can be pretty confident that they're all going to be infectious. And so where there was this discrepancy was because what we now know is that in one sample, you need about a thousand viral particles in order to actually be somebody that can infect somebody else, rather than somebody who's just got a bit of virus in their airway. Whereas the testing was established so that if there were three or four viral particles on a swab in the sample, so in the sample that's being tested, if there's only three or four virus particles, that was called a positive test. So you've got a thousand fold difference between what they'd call a positive test and what it actually takes to be an infected person. And I think the, the thinking was probably that if you've got a bit of virus around, well, maybe you're at the beginning of the infection and it's about to take off. And if we don't call you positive, you're going to go and spread it everywhere. And so there was this ultra caution, which we saw throughout the, the response. All of the policy was based on this, this incredible fear of catastrophe um, that meant that the testing was always about finding any virus at all. And um, even right when, they, when they were doing quality control in the laboratories, it was the laboratory would fail if they weren't finding these tiny, tiny amounts of virus that are almost irrelevant. Now, actually, what we can say in retrospect is that um, we've also got antibody testing. So the antibody testing has shown us what proportion of the population have had COVID in each wave. And the antibody testing tallies pretty well with the number of people being picked up on government testing using the PCR. So obviously not in spring 2020, because there wasn't much PCR going on, but subsequently it tallies pretty well that, that the diagnostic testing the government was doing were finding symptomatic people with COVID who then developed antibodies. Um, but that doesn't mean that on an individual level, it was perfect. And it also doesn't mean that between waves, we didn't have a real problem with testing. And I think between waves, you really have had a problem with testing. And it also doesn't mean that the um, Office of National Statistics, who've been doing this random sampling of the population, estimating how many people have had it based on extrapolating from their sample and doing a lot of modeling along the way, and they have constantly suggested double the number that end up with antibodies. Now, I mean, I just think that's just a massive error in their methodology. And, I, and it comes from them assuming that any person with virus in a sample has COVID. Now, there are various reasons why you might have virus in a sample on a COVID test and not have COVID. Um, one of them is a false positive test result, you know, it's just a kind of error in the testing, but there are other reasons. And the primary one is, if somebody is immune, then what does that mean? Like, it doesn't mean they can't inhale a virus in the air, does it? I mean, that it doesn't produce a force field around you like some kind of cartoon character. If you're immune, it means you're not going to be sick if you've got virus on board, that your body is just going to handle it. So all of the immune population who will be exposed to SARS-CoV-2, when they inhale it, they could test positive. But they are immune and they're not going to be infecting other people, but they're still going to be testing positive. And so all of those people in the ONS samples get included in their massive figures. 
And the and the result of that is that they've essentially estimated that almost everybody's had it now. Or, you know, for everybody that hasn't had it, someone's had it twice. Um, and I just don't think that's true at all. And the um, the antibodies level suggests about half of us have had it. And I think that probably is about true. And when, you know, when you've seen polls just asking people whether they think they've had it, it comes out sort of like the antibody levels and not like the ONS levels. Because mm. everyone's going to think, obviously, because we rebranded pretty much every respiratory illness that you can ever imagine to just to just COVID really within within that sort of two year period. And still, still to this day, people don't know what else to uh, what else to call it. It seems to be we're not allowed to just be ill anymore. Um, so I, think, I think there's something about the, the other respiratory illnesses, which is worth touching on. So um, there are lots of people who've said this has just been a rebranding of flu. And I don't think that's absolutely right. I think that, you know, around the world, there are lots of laboratories who've been testing and testing and testing throughout trying to find influenza in the way they've always have done. And they couldn't find it. Influenza disappeared. And, and you know, we, we had SARS-CoV-2. So it was a rebranding of winter respiratory viruses broadly in that, you know, this has always been a problem that we've had respiratory viruses that come in the winter. And we've got a different one now. And, and it was branded as being something like it was from out of space and it was frightening and it was so very new, which was definitely a rebranding. Um, but I think influenza did genuinely disappear. And I think we saw other respiratory viruses behave in very odd ways as well. So, we, you know, very low levels of some of them. And then respiratory syncytial virus, which is a horrible virus that affects children and causes a higher proportion of them to die than COVID ever did. Um, that ended up causing surges in the summer even though it's a winter virus um which was really really odd and um didn't get the attention it deserved frankly and that just shows what disruption this policy has caused on how we live our lives and how our immune systems work and how we interact with the viruses that are all around us um and makes you question whether uh these sort of complex systems should ever, you should never consider disrupting them because you don't know what the outcomes are going to be. And, and well, you don't know what some of the outcomes are going to be. They knew full well that there were a lot of very negative outcomes that would come out of lockdowns and um, other interventions and did them anyway, even though we didn't know if they would actually benefit in any way. And um, there's some... There are some really interesting aspects of what happened with other diseases and lockdowns. So in particular, if you look at A&E attendance for patients with gastroenteritis and you plot it against the mobility data from the mobile phone networks. So the mobile phone networks were publishing uh, how often people searched to go to, to different places, but also I think they just followed their phones and worked out where people were, whether in the park or at home or at shops. And you could plot that, how it changed over time. And the gastroenteritis cases mapped it perfectly. So they were you know, both all normal levels and they just fall off a cliff at the end of February. Sort of it was the fall off the cliff started before lockdown as people changed their behavior. Um, and then as it crept back up, gastroenteritis crept back up and they just tracked perfectly. So there was a really good evidence that if you've got a disease that spreads 
per, through per, close person-to-person -person transmission, then stopping contacts alters the spread of that disease. You know, it's it, perfect correlation, but that's not what we saw with SARS-CoV-2. And we've seen, um, we, you know, there's tons of evidence that the lockdowns didn't work, that people don't like to, that people have chosen to ignore, but some of it's so in your face now, what with the peak on Freedom Day as we relapsed all the restrictions and all this fell away, and you know, Australia in their horrendous lockdown, then having the biggest surge they've ever had. And, you know, it's just undeniable that there is no correlation between human behavior and what happens with this virus. And I think that's because this virus is not spreading person to person. That is a, a myth. It doesn't mean it doesn't happen, right? I think we've all known stories of it happening, but we've got evidence of people who, you know, spread it within a family usually, Although sometimes they're super special, where you know who you've caught it from. Um, but we also have really good evidence that the virus particles are emitted in um, aerosols that are, that are small. And the point is that there's a particular cutoff at which an aerosol or droplet, because um, that's the cutoff, um, will, if it's, if it's a droplet, it means it's big enough that it will fall to the ground within a second or so. And that's where this idea of a two meter distance comes from, is that if, it, if the virus is being spread through droplets, then that your kind of um, range of droplets that you can spread is around two meters. But we know the vast majority of the virus particles are coming out smaller than droplets. And what we know about that cutoff, and we've known since the 1930s, is that if it's smaller than droplets, then it evaporates faster than gravity can act on it. So it starts getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And when you've got something that's incredibly small and you think of the air currents that are going on in the air, they have more of an impact on it than gravity. And so it will drift away from where that person is and will just spread. And one of the, one of the strong beliefs in virology is that you need to have a particular dosage of virus if you're going to be infected. So the idea remained, even with the aerosols, that you'd still need to be quite close to somebody who was emitting them in order to get a big enough dose. But I'm a bit skeptical about actually how much of a dose you need. So <clears throat> the fact, and we know that there's a balance to be had. There's always a balance to be had. So you've got the virus on the one hand, but you've got your immune system on the other hand. So somebody who's got, who's immune suppressed or is susceptible to this particular virus, will probably need less virus to get an infection. But somebody who's actually got quite good immunity might still get infected if you give them enough virus. And we know this partly because there's a team at UCL who are trying to design a nasal vaccine, because the idea is if you can get immunity in your nose, then the virus can't actually infect you, which means it could have an impact on infections rather than hospitalizations and deaths. <coughs> Sorry. <laughs> you you done a test? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, bad test, bad test joke. Yeah. Um so the UCL team were looking at these nasal vaccines and to test them, they managed to get ethical approval to get young people and deliberately infect them with SARS-CoV-2 and then see if the vaccine protected them. So they had to choose a dose to infect these people with. 
And what their plan was, was to use a relatively low dose and scale it up. So they got their relatively low dose based on how much it dealt with, you know, how much it infected cells and culture. And they gave these young people this dose. And what happened was half of them got, an, got symptomatic infection, which is high. It's really high compared to what we've seen happen each way in nature. And they all got sick straight away. And that, that is just an indication that this dose was way more than what's needed in nature, because in nature, you're exposed to the virus, but you have an incubation period of about five days. So if you think about how many times the virus can double in that time, from one virus, let's say, doubling and doubling and doubling exponentially until at five days you've got symptoms. And they were giving them the kind of five-day dose all in one go which sort of suggests you probably need an awful lot less to have a natural infection. And if that's the case, that means that aerosols that are just drifting through the air could expose people a long way away. And so it also implies that everybody was exposed to every variant in every way, pretty much. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't see a way that you couldn't have been exposed. And when you see it like that, that you've gonna, you're going to be exposed that it's your immune system that's protecting you if you don't get ill, that a, a proportion of the population with each different variant appears to be susceptible. Now, what that means is that if there's another wave and maybe you haven't had COVID yet and this is the one that you are susceptible to, then you might be able to in you know i'm not sure exactly how but you might be able to postpone when you get infected but you're going to get infected because that's the variant you're susceptible to and we know that from the maths of how these waves work you see the maths of it progressing through the population and right from the outset the rate at which it's finding new people to infect is slowing because that population is reducing and so <coughs> <coughs> Sorry. Um, and so the, the mass of it shows that it's just worked its way through the susceptible population. And as it tails away, it's just finding the last remaining people that are still susceptible. Well, crikey's truth. There's a lot to unpack there, but it makes perfect sense. So technically, you were more at risk being outside than you were inside. Is, is basically if we were well, going to go I'm down not that, really yeah. sure about that because I think UV light uh, probably does kill it, and that's why you should probably put UV light into ventilation systems in hospitals to kill it. And it would mean that in the daytime, you should be safer outside because there's just more air around, you know, more wind blowing away and more UV. But in the nighttime, obviously, there's no UV light at all. So, like, what's what's what was happening sorry my machine's talking can you hear it <laughs> don't worry yeah, it's fine don't worry don't worry <laughs> live folks <laughs> <laughs> um i've just lost my train of thought as well oh yeah uh, at night time at night time obviously yeah. the virus will be more so for one infectious person they produce around a hundred thousand viral particles every single minute that they're infected um which means that overnight, in 10 hours overnight, they've produced 72 million particles. 
So if you had started counting to 72 million at the beginning of March 2020 at one a second, you're just about finished counting now. Okay, you know, it's, it's a crazy, yeah. crazy big number of virus particles that have been produced. And you have to kind of wonder what happens to all of them. And that's just one person. You know, at the peak of infection in spring 2020, there's probably 1% of the population who were infected. And they're all producing these vast amounts of virus that, that doesn't, they don't just stay there, they don't just die. And at nighttime, there's no UV light outside. So they will spread in around the neighborhood and the, you know, the air in the neighborhood will be full of virus. Um, and there, there is this sort of strange idea that things can make virus disappear. So I don't know if you remember the Department for Health advert where they had the horrible black dotty dirt like virus coming out of people's um, respiratory tracts when they're socializing yeah. indoors. And they said, well, open a window. You're like, well, is that is that really going to be enough? You know, yes, opening a window might reduce the amount that's in the room, but it doesn't just disappear on the other side of the window, and you don't know who's on the other side of the window either. Um, yeah. Which you know, just there was this sort of there was this. Sort of, I think there's something about things that are so incredibly tiny they're hard to imagine. In numbers that are so big they're hard to envisage, and our, we just can't quite talk about them, we don't quite have the vocabulary to explain how those things work. And so they become like a scary unknown. And there's sort of this odd mythology about them, as if you open a window and it disappears, or you put a mask on. And there's this idea that you put a mask on and you've stopped the virus. You know, well, I mean, there's all sorts wrong with that, but even with a medical grade mask, even if it was perfectly sealed, where's the virus gone there's a lot of potential virus there so where's it gone and we know from ebola um and potentially other infectious diseases viruses that the when you're you know trying to handle the control of the spread of these viruses the the area in the hospitals that have the highest viral load in the air are the rooms where people take off their equipment so they collected all of this muck on this equipment and they take it all off and then the air in that room is full of it because you know it doesn't just disappear it doesn't the masks don't zap it in any way and obviously if we want to talk about masks i mean it's you know even if I mean, the idea that we're filtering through fabric in a way that can capture all of us is just not the case we've got and, and it's interesting how that narrative changed as well isn't it that at the beginning Public health authorities were saying, no, these things don't work, and we've got good evidence that they don't work. Um, and then there was this switch, and the switch happened everywhere, all around the world at once, and people started saying, oh, no, you've got to do this. Um, and there was a belief at the beginning of that period that the drop to transmissions were very important. And so, you know, you're reducing the chance of you spitting on somebody, basically. Although, obviously, as I said, the key were the people who were at home breathing out 72 million particles overnight. Not the healthy people who were going to the shops. But anyway, the healthy people were at the shops and they had these things on. They wore some hairdressers with these things on where the air was not going forwards as you know, it would be spreading droplets at someone's face. It was going backwards through the vents into the hairdresser behind them because that's all that it would do for droplets if you're at the hairdresser is to shove it straight at your hairdresser. Or if you're at school, sat next to your neighbor to the side of where you know where you're both sat so it so in theory it could stop droplets if you're talking to somebody face to face 
But of course, we know it's not just droplets at all. The vast majority is in the aerosols. And the gaps, even in a medical grade mask, um, are problematic. That I don't remember all those pictures that we saw of healthcare workers who were going online and saying how what how hard they were. They're exhausted. You know, you've got to, you've got to change your behaviour because I'm exhausted dealing with COVID at work. And showing pictures of their faces with bruising or something where they'd had the masks on. Um, and you know, possibly they did have these masks on tight enough to 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 filter through the fabric. Um, but there's no way people are wearing medical grade masks like that in public. That that's not they're not sealing them. You can't they're not sealed in that way. And you can tell, you know, sometimes people think they've got them pretty tight. But if when you push it onto your face, you find it harder to breathe through the fabric, that shows that you didn't have them tight and you're just without realising it, breathing all of your air just through the gaps anyway. And we know that um, in Austria and Germany, they both mandated these medical grade masks for, for the public. And it really had no impact on the, the transmission at all. The waves were exactly the same as the rest of Europe. So medical grade mask mandates don't work. Um, and I'm sure we're going to hear calls for those this winter. And I think, you know, we kind of need to be prepared for that. The US have stockpiled 750 million medical grade masks recently. Um, and <clears throat> yeah, exactly. And the people who were campaigning about cloth masks changed their tune and started saying everybody has to wear medical grade masks. So they sort of admitted that they're you know, year-long campaign that everyone should wear for cloth mask was pointless, that it did nothing, that the gaps when, you know, it didn't achieve anything. So now you have to do medical grade masks. But as well as a problem with taking them off and exposing yourself anyway, and the gaps around the edges, um, there's also the problem that you can, it can spread through the eye. So are we going to all have to wear yeah. goggles and medical grade masks? And even if we did all wear goggles and medical grade masks, we're not going to wear goggles and medical grade masks 24-7. We're not. And so you're going to be exposed to the virus during that wave anyway. And if you're immune, you'll be fine. And if you're not, if that's one you're susceptible to, you're going to catch it. And, you know, I think that's just, that's sort of actually what we've known about regarding influenza for a long, long time. So there's a lot of similarities between SARS-CoV-2 and influenza. And influenza is a virus that breaks a lot of the rules, which is why the modeling for SARS-CoV-2 completely fell apart because the modeling for SARS-CoV-2 is based on person-to-person -person transmission. It's based on a measles-type virus. Um, and a measles-type virus will explode cells in culture um, and it will, everybody will be um, susceptible until they are immune. But with influenza, if you go back to 1957, there was a bit of a public health authority panic that remained only a panic among public health authorities because there was a novel influenza virus and they thought a lot of people are going to be susceptible and it could be a really nasty winter. But life went on as normal. And it was a bad winter. It was a bad winter. Um, but, you know, like other bad winters, not, not anything different. And a proportion of the population got this new novel influenza virus and it peaked and it went away. And then it came back the following winter and another proportion got it 
and then it went away and that carried on for 11 years and actually there was one year where it didn't turn up and a different one did i mean that's how weird these viruses are so there was one year where it didn't and it took 10 years altogether to work its way through the population and i think that could be what we see with SARS-CoV-2 that we see it behaving in the same way that it will um that only a proportion of the population are susceptible each winter to each well, you know, to whatever variants are around at the time um and it will do the seasonal thing so people hate me saying the word seasonal because to them it means that there's a due date and it's going to come then but it's not like that the seasonality what the seasonality means is that it behaves in the same way across the year as influenza did and for northern hemisphere countries like the uk that means that in spring and autumn it's around and in winter it's worse and in summer it's gone broadly it doesn't mean that you can't have waves that are different now you might say to me hey claire but we had delta in the summer and i'd say to you yeah we did because we were measuring in a way we have never measured before the way we measured before was with deaths and hospitalizations and if you look in summer nothing was happening in the hospitals or in terms of deaths it was behaving in a seasonal way where you know if you measure it in conventional way then the hospitalizations and the deaths are following a pattern that actually looks like influenza where you have a bad winter and then you have a good winter because actually you've already lost all your frail but then you by the next winter you've managed to build up more of a frail population you have a bad winter again and, and so i do think that could happen as an outcome but i'm always going to hedge when i'm talking about the future so my other story about the future goes like this we um we in 1889 we had russian flu which was thought to be a coronavirus that continues to circulate to this day and there were excess deaths uh, they thought that quinine worked quite well as a treatment at the time and there were about three years of significant excess deaths and then it went away or rather the excess death numbers returned to what had been seen before um which was all the only measure we really got from that time and um we don't know actually how many years we continue to have the coronavirus as the dominant virus each winter rather than influenza we just don't know but it, that nevertheless seemed to be a sort of three-year pattern potentially um and we saw SARS-1 you know have a, an impact to start with and then not have much of an impact and what we've seen this winter is the return of influenza so we saw influenza return in Sweden between Omicron waves they had Omicron and they had quite a big gap between their waves where they had influenza and then they had Omicron again and it sort of took a bite out of the influenza um, levels. Um, we saw influenza back in India and um, the Indian subcontinent and um, we've seen it in some other European countries we haven't seen it much here yet but if influenza is back then that suggests that whatever made it disappear is not the same as it was before and when it did disappear there were some points on that that people haven't really noted which i think are quite important so influenza disappeared in italy two weeks earlier than it disappeared in sweden and the uk 
and obviously the SARS-CoV-2 surge there two weeks earlier. So <coughs> I do think that there's something important happening between influenza and SARS-CoV-2 that meant when one disappeared, the other one was appearing. Mm. And influenza normally, as I said, it's a weird virus that we don't understand very well. But what we do know is that the virus is around in the summer, but people don't seem to, people get infected with it in the summer too, but they don't, it never takes off in that same way. And no one's ever really been able to explain why you get these sudden surges of influenza where it's the same genetic variant across the northern hemisphere all at the same time you know you couldn't possibly have spread person to person in the time it takes to get these surges and where the surges are so sudden and dramatic and that's been the case for hundreds of years this is not something to do with modern day travel um and People can't explain it, and people the, the the kind of official textbook explanation is that we don't get it in the summer because we're outside, and then we all huddle in the winter indoors, and that's why it spreads like that. And I just don't buy that at all. Not least because there are plenty of northern hemisphere countries where people huddle from away from the heat in the summer in air conditioned houses, and they don't get influenza outbreaks there. And there are also plenty of really quite mild places like California and Australia that have the same winter influenza peaks, but they're not huddling away from anything in the winter in the same way. So I don't buy that. Um, and there was a GP called Edgar Hope Simpson, who um, had a career in the, um, up to the 19, well, sort of around the 1930s, I can't remember exactly the trajectory. And he worked in Sirencester, as, uh, but he really focused on influenza research and he managed to get funding. And so he described his little 18th century cottage on Sirencester High Street as the um, Epidemiological Research Institute for Influenza or something quite, something quite grand like that. And, um, and he wrote this brilliant book, of, which just basically put forward all of the unanswered questions around influenza. Um, and he put forward a hypothesis that, to explain some of it. Um, but I think the hypothesis isn't as interesting to me as all the unanswered questions that, you know, that the science should be about what we don't know and and where our understanding doesn't fit reality and, and somehow that gets lost. And I think those are the things that are most exciting in the world are those questions that are unanswered. Anyway, he has this, he describes that surge as a, something is being caused by a seasonal trigger. So he never comes to claims to explain he understands what the seasonal trigger is. There isn't an explanation for it. And I think it would be a mistake to say we can't discuss it happening just because we can't explain why it happens. But it happens that you have a seasonal trigger. And in most winters with influenza, there'd be two. So you'd get one surge and then you'd have this dominant influenza variant. And after that surge, there'd be another seasonal trigger and you'd switch to the sort of second dominant variant of the season. And the following winter, the second dominant would be the first to surge. And then another one would surge with a second seasonal trigger. But with all the measuring we've done with SARS-CoV-2, I reckon that you can have, you always get a winter seasonal trigger. And I think you can have autumn and you can have spring as well. But you don't necessarily have spring as well. So if you think about spring 2020, 
uh, we had Western Europe had spring 2020. Eastern Europe didn't, just didn't have a search. Um, and that includes Germany not having a search. And it wasn't, you, know, you can't sort of suggest that it was behavioral because everybody was doing the same thing. Everybody was. Mm -hmm. um, but the whole of that geographical area didn't have a search. The, the middle of the USA from, I can't remember all the names of it, Missouri, Montana, down to um, Oklahoma, the whole sort of middle swathe of states didn't have a spring 2020 search. And then you roll on to spring 2021 and we had, so we had in the UK, we had autumn 2020, winter 2021. We didn't have anything in spring 21. It just disappeared. It just fell through the floor. And that was true, not just here, it was true in Portugal, it was true in Ireland. And so there was this kind of very, very Western Europe thing going on, but we just didn't have anything in spring 2021. And Eastern Europe had a really big spring 2021 wave. Um, so, you know, that just, I think there is something going on geographically with these seasonal triggers that we don't understand. And until we understand them, then, you know, that we, we, we can't start really talking about transmission properly or really understanding what can, won't, will or won't affect spread because the, the models do not fit this idea that it's person to person. So one of the ways the models do not fit that is that if you take the deaths that happened in spring 2020 and you say, okay, we were really good at diagnosing deaths at the peak, but you know, we're not so sure we diagnosed all of the earlier ones because people didn't all know what to how to recognise it at that point. So um, what we know is that there were people who were infected with COVID back in autumn 2019 and in, in through the winter, but there were not excess deaths to match that. So if you take the trajectory and you plot it as if it was person-to-person -person spread, you don't see the excess deaths that match that. Um, and then you can also, what what people, what the React survey Imperial did was they found people who had antibodies afterwards. So they knew they had had the infection. And they just said to them, when did you have your symptoms? And they managed to plot a graph that showed when people had their symptoms. And there were absolutely people who had them in the winter that preceded March 2020. But then there was this massive sudden uptick in when people had them um, around when you know around end of February beginning of March and and that sudden from just you know trickling along not doing anything to being at the peak just almost within a week or two that was that, that when they rolled out the first dose was that when they rolled out the first dose of the jab was it no 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 this is March 2020 this is all before vaccines oh 2020 not 21 big part yeah, sorry all before vaccines and it, it was just the 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 way that that just like appears overnight everywhere bang everyone's got it and the way you hear the doctors describe how it hit the hospitals you know there was this sort of expectation bit of you know there was a lot of kind of waiting and then bang everybody turns up all at once and then it was gone and then that's really weird and that does not fit the person-to-person -person transmission model that Ferguson and Tal were trying to use or still trying to use mm. so okay first of all then for, for all the people that have thrown the argument around can the pcr test determine which strain of flu you have 
for, for argument's sake. So I know there's a, the common misconception that the PCR can't distinguish between the common cold or COVID. Is that is that true? No, and that's not true. So PCR is one of the most specific tests we have in medicine in that because it's looking for a sequence of nucleic acid, it can, um, it's quite hard to cheat it. So you, you right. kind of need to have that sequence in order to to be get diagnosed. There are ways it goes wrong. There are, you know, there are ways it can go wrong, but the proportion of tests that go wrong is low. When you're testing million or more a day, that proportion is not irrelevant. Um, but but broadly, on a population level, you know, you can tell if someone's got SARS-CoV-2 or if they've got influenza. On an individual level, you can tell if they've got influenza or they've got SARS-CoV-2. The thing is that we never used to test for influenza. There was no mm. point in testing for influenza. We would just, you know, we would see somebody who had a respiratory problem and we would treat the respiratory problem. And we would test for influenza in a sort of public health way. You know, we would do a sort of sample, see how much there was around, see how it was going. But there was no need to test individuals in that same way. And if people were very sick, you might investigate a bit further and test more. Um, but for the vast majority of people with influenza, they'd never have been tested for it. So you'd never have known. And and that's one of the <clears throat> um, one of the things that we sort of haven't admitted about virus infections is that <clears throat> people who are very sick will test positive for viruses. And people who are dying really test positive for viruses. So they did it in Spain. There was a study where they swabbed people in the mortuary for respiratory viruses. And um, they found, so these were people who died of all different causes. And they found that 47% of them had a respiratory virus that we have a test for. I mean, most respiratory viruses we probably don't test for because we just don't know what to test for. But these were 47% of them had one that you could actually identify on a test. And 7% of those, 7% sorry, of total had a coronavirus on board at death. So if you think, well, if that happened before COVID, 7% of people have a coronavirus at the point of death, then, you know, that, that does sort of sheds a slightly different light on what it means to have a positive viral test. Now, I think there was a virus and I think it did cause a respiratory syndrome that was quite characteristic. And I think it did kill some people. But there were also a lot of people tested positive for it and who died who didn't necessarily die of it. And that's a really important distinction. And particularly last winter, winter 2020 to 21, there was massive overdiagnosis where the, for a, a good proportion, I think it's about a third, were dying um, who the third might be wrong, but it was a good proportion of people would die with a positive COVID test labeled as a COVID death. And you could tell from the data that that person would have died, or at least on a population scale, there were people that would have died anyway. And so people who would have died of respiratory diseases weren't dying of them anymore. And people who would have died of cardiac diseases weren't dying of them anymore. Even people who would have died of cancer weren't dying anymore of cancer because they were all dying of COVID. But obviously, we know, you know, on a population level, if these people were dying, then if they were going to die anyway, then that is a sort of accidental, incidental diagnosis. And, and we've, I mean, right from the beginning, it was very suspicious to me 
the idea that if you're going to diagnose people within 28 days of a positive test, you will find some people dying coincidentally in that period of time. You know, of course, there'll be coincidences, but there was no coincidences in the data. They, they were apparently all genuinely COVID. And with Omicron, that story's changed. And now doctors are allowed to say it was incidental. And doctors seem to have got much more confident about diagnosing other causes of death, even in the presence of a positive test. So with Omicron, we've had deaths where they have had a positive test, but they have not been recorded as COVID deaths, which was not happening in the winter before. And obviously, it's a stark, stark contrast to the story that doesn't matter how many people died within 28 days of a vaccine. Those were all coincidences. You sort of can't have it both ways. You know, if you're going to take that number within 28 days of a vaccine that were coincidences, surely we can extrapolate that to the ones that were in 28 days of a positive test, because some of those must have been coincidences too. <clears throat> yeah, I, I mean, so... The reason I'm asking you these questions is because very early on for myself uh, and for those of us that were kind of already folding our tinfoil hats for, for, for Donnie, there was a lot of talk of similar things that you've described today with the viral load on the tests, the threshold of the testing and everything else would determine whether that person potentially would be symptomatic and therefore a threat, whether the, the viral load in, in the patient would actually trigger an immune response or not. So there was all these extenuating factors which we touched on briefly because you're only getting as a pathologist you're only getting a small picture of a uh, small piece of the picture you've got no idea of the patient the symptoms and all this kind of stuff um so do you think the government were aware of obviously what would happen if they mass tested everybody then obviously and, and put the threshold so high uh initially at the start that they knew what they were doing um well yeah i do because we we've had it all before so in 2009, um, I don't know if you remember the, what was called the swine flu pandemic. Yeah. And there are an awful lot of parallels with swine flu. So it starts off with a certain gentleman called Neil Ferguson. He predicts that there's going to be about 60,000 deaths. There were about 147 in the end. Um, and then um, everything was, there was a, a real attempt to ramp up fear about it, which I think just wasn't as successful. It didn't quite penetrate in the way that it did this time. The government bought 132 million doses of vaccine and they started buying the vaccine before any clinical trials because it was an influenza vaccine. And so what they had done was just use the regular influenza backbone of a vaccine and just swap in this particular influenza. but. You know, that that is what we do every winter, but you, it doesn't mean that it's going to be safe because until you've tested something, you don't know that it's safe. And the vaccine was pushed uh, particularly at children and pregnant women. Um, six million people took it. Um, and this was all in 2009 into 2010. And by the end of 2010, Finland and Sweden were saying we've got a problem with narcolepsy in teenagers who've had this vaccine. So narcolepsy is a condition where the bit of your brain that controls the sleep centres goes wrong. And it means that you can be paralysed when you're awake without any warning or that you just fall asleep, you know, when you're busy doing something. So you can't operate machinery, you can't drive, you can't, I mean, it's very, very disabling. And people who had it committed suicide and it was horrible, really horrible. Anyway, there was just denial that this was a problem for some time. There was a period when it was all blamed on the virus, which is a sort of familiar story too, isn't it? Um, 
And then it took till 2013, so three or four years, before Public Health England said, oh yeah, we've got this problem in our teenagers that have the vaccine as well. And then in 2020, so a decade later, Public Health England said, well, actually, now that we're looking retrospectively and able to measure it properly, this was a bigger problem than we thought it was. Um, and the reason they hadn't thought it was a big problem before is they had assumed that some of the teenagers who had it would have got it eventually, but just had it earlier than they would have done. And yeah, so when they took, yeah, so I think that's that's the kind of backdrop that we're dealing with in terms of how say you know how safety is dealt with and how long it takes to measure these things and and also the backdrop of having governments who are totally bought in to this ideology of pandemic catastrophes and of vaccine savior narratives which you know we've just seen played out in spades with this one and continuing to i don't think i mean they're the I remember when the vaccine was first um, sort of announced as being a success and the people within Heart, who I was talking to, our fear around the vaccine wasn't anything to do with the vaccine. We believed it was going to be a success. Our fear was that the government were going to use this as an excuse to say lockdowns worked the first time and now we got you a vaccine and now we don't have to lock down anymore and we saved the day. That was the worry that it was going to really work and they were going to use this as a get out clause and make it look like they'd done everything right. Um, and it was, you know, it's, we still have a, a range of views within heart about the vaccine, but with, we had a consensus quite early on that it would be very, very wrong to be vaccinating children who aren't at risk. Mm. And so we've campaigned about that from very early on. <clears throat> and it's been really, horrible seeing the creep as younger and younger children get targeted and more and more doses for children it's really frightening <coughs> so okay let me just have a quick look at through these questions here because obviously you've answered pretty much a lot of the questions that i wanted to uh to put across to yourself um fill me in on how the heart group started then because that's that was for me um from a from a British perspective, the, the Americans are always, in my opinion, a little bit more further ahead of the curve with these certain potential alternate narratives. Whereas it, they seem to be able to sort of accept it as a possibility more, and then go down it and explore it. Whereas us in England, we have such crystallised narratives. Sometimes, that if you come along and try and shake that tree, we're very much like, no, 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 no. Um, so there's never there's never an open dialogue for for these things. So it's, you always want to say, look, just put put put. Put your opinions to the side for a second. Let's have an adult conversation about this potential narrative that that, that may happen and see what we would do if it was to happen. So um, I was quite happy to see an English group of, of clinicians, doctors and stuff coming together. And I remember speaking to, to emailing a gentleman um, before I, I did my video um, about wanting to get involved in, in actually the project itself because it was just so great to see some clinicians and doctors coming together against what was going on. But because I couldn't really contribute anything because I was just doing home visits at the time, I say just, I was doing home visits at the time. And I obviously just being a, an ambulance driver, you know, it, it felt like we didn't have as much clout to bring to the party. But looking back at it now, we were living in real time data as in we were going, yeah. out to, you know, seeing what they were, what, what their reactions were like, how how soon after they'd taken the jab, how will, you know, looking back at it now, I had loads of information. You really did. Um, I just didn't know how to quantify it at the time yeah. or put it into an article. 
So um, anyway, coming back to the original topic, so what, what was the original sort of brainstorming for, for the heart group then? How did you all come, kind of come together and come up with the idea? So um, it wasn't my idea. So there were a group of us who um, were speaking out and who were um, being attacked and um, being described as outliers or lone wolves. And we, we, it was very easy to dismiss us on that basis because we were each single voices. And it was actually a man called Nerese Bernard who had this idea that we had to speak to one and got us all together. Um, and, um, you know, he's absolutely to be credited for that. So we've, we've now got, we could then speak as a group of professionals, which obviously presents everything in a much different way. And we've always tried to just, you know, be obviously be completely evidence-based mm. and, and be hopefully as accessible as possible. I think a lot of us have, um, you know, we're, we're scientists broadly. And so trying to communicate and express ourselves in writing for some of us has been a bit of a steep learning curve. And I think we have got better as it, at it as a group. And I hope we've managed to reach people. But we do sometimes get a bit of kickback from people saying we're being a bit too data focused or a bit too esoteric, but never mind. Um, and um, what we've tried to do is be that moderate voice that says, well, you know, this is what established science shows us and, and this doesn't quite fit. And we wrote a, a broad sweep of the evidence in March 2021, um, going through each of the kind of key topics. And we're just finishing now reviewing each of those and seeing what's changed in the last year. And obviously things have changed a little bit, but broadly, there's not a lot that we've said then that isn't hasn't held true throughout and is still true now, um, which is quite encouraging. And you know, we, we're not we don't claim to be omniscient, so we were expecting some some changes. And there are, as I said, there are some things that have, have we did get a bit wrong that we're correcting. Um, and um, one of the things that strikes me talking about America, you know, you're saying how perhaps a bit more open-minded. I'm not sure that's entirely true. And, and what's interesting about the people who have spoken out there, there are groups, there's the sort of American Frontline Doctors group, and there's Robert Malone has got 17,000 doctors behind him as a group. But a lot of the people that you hear speaking out are um, their own person, and they're, they're speaking out without really coordinating with any of the other doctors. And what, what I find with some of those voices is that they say something really, really important and they say it, they're brilliant communicators, they say it really, really well, really clearly, and they don't get hurt. And then they sort of say it more. <laughs> and then they sometimes say it in a bit a way that's a bit more dramatic. And I'm not and I'm just not sure. And I'm not criticizing them. And I think they're probably what you need is a whole range of approaches. But I'm not sure I would be comfortable with taking that approach because I don't think that would get through to a British audience of people who are sort of starting to question things. I think the more dramatic you are, the more that switches them off because they want to hear something that kind of fits a bit with their worldview. And I mean, that's one of the challenges with all of this in terms of getting people to understand what's gone on is it's really complicated and big. That's, you, so you can kind of, you know, the way I did, you can pick up one thread and things start to unravel and you can sort of follow that thread. And, and you know, it took me probably six months of working flat out full time before I understood what was going on. And I think that's probably true of a lot of the people that do understand what's going on is that they have put in 
huge numbers of hours. And obviously we can't expect everyone to do that. So we have to be able to crystallize it down into key points that can get the whole story across without switching somebody off. And it, and you don't know what it is that's going to trigger them to be switched off and think, well, I, you know, I don't believe that bit. And so now I'm not going to listen to anything else that you're going to say. Um, and it will be different for different people. And it's hard to know. You know. For some people, they're never, ever going to think they were wrong about it. You know, they, they've, they've gone through this journey with a belief about what all of what they've been told and what's true. And they don't want to feel that they got it wrong. And I think just, you know, human nature, some people will never admit they're wrong. So we're going to be living with people for the rest of our lives who believe the entire narrative. I think we just have to face that. We're in population forever. We're going to believe that. Mm. Um, and we have to aim at the people who are, you know, less stubborn, <clears throat> who are prepared to accept that people might have said things to them that weren't true, especially when you show the contradictions, and who are ready to take on board the broader picture. And of course, some aspects of COVID are brilliant for just showing themselves up, right? So with other science, you know, in the past, when you're trying to sell a scientific hypothesis, like say germ theory or you know Galileo stuff, then you it would be very hard to get through to a member of the public about it because they wouldn't understand the details to understand the argument. But with things like vaccines don't stop infections, people know that because they've seen it in their everyday life. They know they were lied to about that. They can't deny it. They were lied to about it. They might believe that it was true and the truth changed. You know, that's kind of about where you can be. But you can't deny that it doesn't stop infections the way it was sold out to. And so, you know, that that's the one advantage we have on our side is that things, there's a sort of common sense part aspect of it that, you know, people who've been wearing masks throughout when you're suddenly believing in it forever and then catch it anyway, what, what do you make of that? maybe the mask didn't work. And what do I mean, especially now we've got some more, some, I think there's been a, there was one study that came out a month or so ago, but there's been uh, another few studies that have come out on the back of it, which they're now coining the term mask lung, which they're putting in the same sort of category um, as, um, as oh, I can't say the word, asbestosis, is it? From, uh, from working in asbestos environments, obviously got the scarring of the lungs and everything else from working in those environments. They're reckoning now that they've found quite a lot of plastic particles that can be associated with with obviously prolonged mask wearing which then obviously causes other other respiratory problems um so there may be kind of claims further on down the line that that's obviously causing industrial damage a bit like asbestos did um yeah and I, mean, see, I, I haven't read those papers you might be right but i would i just tried to caution around making people more scared you know, I think we've just had so much fear and, and then and there's still so much fear that you see on social media with people talking about vaccine adverse reactions in a really overdramatic and totally unevidenced way about, you know, people keep quoting these huge numbers of failed pregnancies because of the vaccine, which cannot be true because the birth rates are basically normal and huge numbers of deaths, which cannot be true because we have vaccinated millions of people who haven't died. And so, you know, they just, I don't know what they're trying to achieve, but it's really, really unhelpful for everybody because it makes anybody that 
is concerned about the vaccine look like a mad person and it and it also makes people who've had the vaccine scared and I don't think we need more fear I think that the fear is not I mean I might be wrong some people think that that's, you need to frighten people out of it but I, I think fear is is dangerous and we're only going to reach people by being calm and showing that we care about them and getting through to them using just you know common sense and and I, I mean realistically data does not get through to people I've learned that the hard way uh-huh. data is not the answer it has to be through stories um but there are you know I think we can gradually bring people back into the fold and get people being rational again um without scaring them and um on, on the vaccine <clears throat> um I think it's important to say that there are certain aspects of what was done with the vaccine that would be wrong, even if the vaccine didn't harm a single person. So the mandates would be wrong anyway. Mm. And the lack of informed consent would be wrong anyway. And rolling out to children who don't need it would be wrong anyway. And I think if, if we always make it about the harms, then you lose sight of those principles and it's really important that we work on the principles because you know when it's always about balance of risk and benefit <coughs> which is how it's presented then you can argue things either way and it becomes gray and it's not that's not how ethics works i think that's what they've been trying to do though haven't they? if they keep us arguing at, at polar opposite ends of the of the argument instead of concentrating more on what, what we need to which is in the middle we're not we're, we're arguing, but we're not finding the information that we really need to find um, because we're too busy arguing amongst ourselves. We need to be asking the, the, the other people those sorts of questions. Did, have you seen the data from the Pfizer drop that, that spoke about the pregnancies? Uh, and, and Yeah, the- so that, that data that people quote is a paper. It's a, a publication from Pfizer that was around it was early 2021 and they were publishing all the reports they had been sent from the beginning of the global rollout. So they had um, um, people who, doctors who were concerned about a potential association with the vaccine would report it into the national systems. And some of those doctors reported things to Pfizer as well. Mm. And actually the numbers reported to Pfizer were a fraction of what reported in the national systems because most doctors wouldn't go that extra step. So, you know, if you look at the national systems, you actually get higher figures. But what the people are quoting from, from that document, are the number of people whose pregnancies were reported to Pfizer as having been a problem. Mm. And then giving the proportion of those that were abortions, as in, sorry, spontaneous abortions, as in miscarriages. So the proportion is not of pregnant women who had the vaccine, it's a proportion of reports sent to Pfizer because there was a problem in the pregnancy. So it was a completely different denominator with a completely different meaning. So yes, those numbers can be referenced to a Pfizer document, but it's not numbers from the trial, which is what people often claim. It's numbers from the first few months of global rollout. So that denominator was enormous. Because they didn't do any, so I heard that those were women that actually just became pregnant during the trial uh, because they hadn't actually done any actual testing at the time on pregnant women. 
but those women. Yeah, I've heard that said too. So I've gone through some of that Pfizer dump data, and there were actually quite a lot of women that became pregnant during the trial. I was quite surprised. Yeah. I think about fifty. Um, and um, I have not seen. I mean, to be fair, the Pfizer dump's enormous, and I haven't been through all of it. Yeah, I've not seen any document that specified what happened in those pregnancies. So what what the document I've seen is participant became pregnant, withdrawn from trial. And I don't know how much follow-up these women had afterwards. In theory, they should have been followed up, but the document I've seen is just that they were withdrawn, meaning they wouldn't have another vaccine dose if they'd only had one at that stage. Yeah. Well, so maybe I haven't seen all the documentation. I mean, send it to me if you know the one, but the one I've seen circulated, I'm pretty sure, is, is from that global rollout data. And there is stuff that I've seen in the Pfizer dump that's really concerning around the trial. So there are, there's a lot of little bits of um, information trickling out. And I don't know quite whether it's better to emphasize lots of little irregularities or whether, you know, because in the end, if someone's gonna be taking Pfizer to court with a claim that they were fraudulent, say, then um, that information will be presented to a court as well. There was this, that, and the other, and it would be a you know a kind of compendium. But if you um, and so I think that's probably how it would be in the end. But I'd say one of the key bits of data would be the antibody results from the patients in the trial. So Pfizer stated at the outset that a secondary outcome from the trial would be the antibody testing, and they never reported what the antibody testing showed. And they were doing two types of antibody testing. So they did the test to show that the vaccine produced antibodies, but they also did the test that shows you've had an infection for the oh, yeah. N antibodies. And they tested at the outset, and then they tested at the end. And some people uh, were positive at the outset and negative at the end. You know, there's some that were sort of funny. But if you take the people who went from negative to positive, then there were 75 of them in the vaccine group and 160 in the placebo group. So <clears throat> that's quite different to the result they presented, which was eight in the vaccine arm, which was after the second dose mm. and about 165 in the placebo arm. Um, so the placebo arm matches quite well. But the thing that we know about the vaccines subsequently, they didn't know this at the time of the trial, but we've known subsequently that people who've been vaccinated and then get an infection don't produce antibodies at the same proportion as people who haven't been vaccinated, this particular N antibody. So once you adjust for that and say, well, what about these vaccines? How many of these vaccinated people would have had an infection if only this percentage of them actually end up with antibodies? Mm. There's basically no difference between the group at all. So if you take the, the data from the moment that people entered the trial until they left, you know, until they stopped measuring, the same number of people got COVID in both arms of the trial, which figures, given that we kind of know it doesn't stop infections, um, that, you know, that data was there all along um, and it was presented, it wasn't presented, they didn't present the antibody data, even though it was a secondary outcome. Yeah, it certainly wasn't 95% effective, as is as, as, as what they were saying. Well, the 95% effective thing was judgy from the outset. So mm. the, 
Do you remember thalidomide in 1961? Yes, yes, I do, yeah. Thalidomide is a story of the morning sickness remedy that was given to pregnant women, um, and it was marketed as safe and effective, and about 5,000 babies died, and 5,000 had severe limb deformities as a result. And afterwards, the pharmaceutical industry got together, and they set, set up a body to self-regulate around how they market these products. And they, the rules were, you never call anything safe or use the word safety without some kind of caveats. You never say, um, you never allowed to kind of push the effectiveness without caveating, you know, without explaining exactly what you mean. You mustn't use relative risk reductions, I'll explain that in a minute, um, without, sitting alongside it, the absolute risk reduction. So what that means in terms of the Pfizer trial is that they compared a tiny percentage in one arm who had COVID with a tinier percentage in the vaccine arm who had COVID. And instead of saying that the reduction in risk of having COVID during the trial was 0.84%, which it was, that was the percentage of people who didn't have it because they were in the vaccine arm, they just compared the, the difference in percentage between the two tiny numbers. And that's where the 95% comes from. Wow. The 95% being a figure that the ABPI, who are the pharmaceutical people who agreed the rules, say you should never have presented without also at the same time saying it was a 0.84% reduction in actual infections in that arm over the other arm. So, and then the thing is that 95% figure was sold as if it meant that 95% of people wouldn't get infected. And, and it was sold in a way, I mean, it was quite extraordinary. It seemed that the people who really should have known better, public health authority officials, believed that. The way it was talked about, it sounded like they also believed that that's what that figure meant. And it never meant that. But that's their job. That this is this is the thing I can't get my head around. Re regardless of what the Pfizer data dump says, because I know that there's there's I've met so many people with difference of opinions on on the whole do doping of the Pfizer dump. The fact it needed to be uh, initially they wanted to take seventy five years to to distribute that information. Um, that in itself, you know, creates alarm bells. The, the studies for things like that should be readily available for everyone to peer review and, and look into yeah. unless. That 75 years number is, is really annoying to me because I've used it myself, I think, um, because it just, just penetrated everyone's consciousness, but it's wrong. So it's 55 years, it was 2076. I'll be slightly less dead by the time it comes out. Than <laughs> but still, you know, you, you no, get no, absolutely it should ring alarm bells. But there's all sorts of things that should have rung alarm bells. So, right at the outset, um, in the Indian medical regulator quite rightly said, look, you've had this trial, and within the trial were people from Argentina, Turkey, Germany, the USA, Brazil, South Africa, but you haven't had any Indians in there, and I, we, we need to check it in our population. So, yeah, you can come and do it here, but we'll do a trial first, and then and then we'll talk about contracts. And Pfizer said, oh, don't worry then, we, we'll just leave. We think, how concerning is that? They just said goodbye to 1.4 billion potential customers because they didn't want to rerun the trial there with that regulator being involved. 
I mean, this is this is what I can't get my head around. So, I mean, when you look into the history of Pfizer as a company, anyway, that that will put enough hairs on on people's um, that will stand hairs up on people's backs, anyway. When you look at all the the other stuff they've been, I think between Pfizer and another company, they've got the largest fine for compensation in history um, for 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 some medications that they've they've done out. But um, I think. So the thing that concerned me is obviously Pfizer, they did what they did, but we had the MRHA, Public Health England and, and all these other organisations that, that their sole job is to make sure this thing doesn't happen, you know, within reason and that there's, there's protocols put in place. The lack of evidence with regards to pregnancy and people with comorbidities and, and, and all the bits and pieces, they had no evidence really to, to, to back up the claims that they were making, that it was safe, especially during pregnancy and for people with comorbidities and, and everything else do, do you they must have known surely they must have known when they read the data i mean did they have access to the data because we've had to fight for it so what data were they getting given to be oh, that's a very good question i don't know what the data the mhra saw but um there's something funny about medical regulators because mm. there is something odd about how it's all set up but there's somebody i met recently who had a career or has a career in regulating for environmental toxins and safety for humans in that regard and it seems that the culture is completely different to medicines and um there's this there seems to be something funny whereby the regulators internationally are all watching each other all the time and so they if one of them says something they'll all follow suit and, and so they're all kind of waiting for the first one to go. And sometimes they want to be the first one to go. Mm. And they make sure they recently said that they're aiming to be the lead regulator on decision-making. And the way they're going to do that is they're going to make all decisions within 100 days. Like, well, is that really what medical regulation should aspire to? Speed. Is that all that matters? Speed. I really don't think it does. And we learned nothing. Uh, we learned nothing of what happens yeah, when you try yeah. rush something out, you know, too quickly. And they, the, the other thing about medical regulators is that they're regulating around whether or not drugs work and the evidence for the efficacy and the evidence on safety. And it's the same people. And it, it feels to me like they, they shouldn't be the same people. Because if you've got one group saying, well, we think this works, so we want to approve it, or you know, even have an emergency approval or some kind of different kind of a license, then the people who are worried about safety should be separate people who can then call it out. Because mm. if you're the same person that said yes, you're going to be the person that says no now. And so I don't think that's set up properly at all. Um, and the thing, final, sorry, the final thing where regulators, where it's not working, and this isn't necessarily their fault, but this is just not working. If you talk about um, people who've died after vaccination, what you find is there were an awful lot of vaccines given and there was not a single death certificate that mentioned the vaccine. And then the EMA and the MHRA around the same time said there is this very rare specific type of brain clot that the vaccine can cause. And then suddenly there's this handful of deaths caused by that, that people start writing in the death certificate. So it's the doctors and the coroners who won't write it in the death certificate until the regulator says it exists. And they're saying it exists based on Scandinavian doctors having the guts to call it out, but not the doctors here. Mm. So it's back to front. And then the regulators are like, well, 
we haven't seen any deaths. We've only got this handful of this weird brain clot. What are you talking about? Because the regulators can't call out a cause of death until they've got the death certificates. Mm. And the death certificates aren't being written until the regulators said there's a specific cause of death that is related to the vaccine. That seems to be where we are. I, 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 I definitely would agree there. A, a colleague of mine who works in A&E, um, he said the best freedom of information request we could do would be to ask what they put in, uh, you know, where um, cause of death in box number one, what was actually from COVID. Because obviously a lot of them, you've got your cause of death and secondary to, to X, Y and Z. Um, and it all depends on the what number you put in into what box as to what the actual cause of death was. Um I so, totally agree with that, actually. So there, there's, there's, someone's done that FOI. Um, so there was one FOI where there were only 6,000 deaths that had only COVID on the death certificate. And there's another FOI where there were only 17,000 deaths that had no other comorbidity mentioned on the death certificate. But you'd need but to do that per trust, you see. That, that's the thing. You'd need to do it per trust because that's something that's not nationally available. But I think it's meaningless anyway because... If you've got someone who's genuinely died of COVID, then a decent death certificate is going to say more than just COVID, right? I mean, you know, why would you say one. that? A decent one. Sorry? A decent death certificate may, but, uh, yeah, you know. Yeah. But there are, and there are doctors that write decent death certificates. And they would write, you know, whether or not there was a pneumonia, whether there was clotting, or you know, whatever it was that precipitated the death, and then say, that it was due to COVID. So I think that there will be plenty of death certificates that have more than COVID written on it, where COVID was the ultimate cause of death. Um, and um, the, the death certification process was never designed to pretend to be this perfect, this accurate. It's not, you know, the, the idea that it's perfect is just an illusion. And the, the purpose of it up until recently was to summarise what happened to some patient for the sake of the family's understanding and also to give public health a view, an overview of what's going on generally in the population. But in such a broad brush way that actually the inaccuracies didn't particularly matter. And we have a system of justification that is not reproducible in any way. You get five doctors to write a death certificate on a particular patient, you'll have five different death certificates. Yeah. Um, and 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 that's that's despite the fact that death certification is actually relatively um, constrained and simple. You know, you have up to three things you can put in the direct cause, and then you can add things that might have contributed indirectly. Um, we've also got coding of deaths where mm. people will write the codes in the hospital system of all the different things that went on which gives you a lot more detail um and maybe it's a bit more reproducible i don't know you hope that if you're putting in all the things that went on it might be a bit reproducible um but it was never designed to be used in the way that it has been used and um and it's i've seen uh, some death certificates where my gut reaction as a pathologist is think, oh, that's a rubbish death certificate. So they'd written um, that somebody had died um, of pneumonia caused by lung cancer, caused by COVID. Now that is illogical, right? Because the COVID didn't cause the lung cancer. Mm. The lung cancer probably did cause pneumonia. 
but I can almost see where that doctor was coming from. They've got a patient in front of them who's died of pneumonia. They know the lung cancer will have contributed to that pneumonia, but they also think COVID contributed to that pneumonia. What are they meant to write? There isn't an answer. And they weren't meant to write what they did write, but it's like a plea for help, isn't it? Like, well, I don't know, I'm just going to put this all down. Yeah. Yeah. And obviously, the, the real question then is, if this patient died of pneumonia and had lung cancer, would they have done that anyway, with or without COVID, because of another virus? Mm. And that's quite hard for the doctor to answer too, because they could probably answer in a broad sense, within the next few months, yes. But today, I don't know. And nobody knows. So is it wrong to say it was COVID if they would have died within the next few months one way or another? I don't know. I, think, I mean, looking, speaking, I've got a lot of doctor friends prior to doing all this sort of stuff. The environment I worked in before, I've got, I've got a lot of doctor, doctor friends. And um, you've, got, you've got, Dr. Ali Jazz touched on this as well. You've got two types of personas of doctors. You've got those that are quite brave and those that aren't. Um, and I think this situation has highlighted those that would be willing to speak out against something that they thought was wrong and those that would just follow follow the orders. But But the orders weren't being relayed down so people weren't sure on what to do to still stay on this side of the line other than than, than push the push the narrative what's changed for you then over the last obviously we, we're trying to correlate data when data is actually happening is always very difficult and subjective and you know like like you've discussed what have you noticed now that we've had sort of two years of, of data and you've re obviously reviewed some of the stuff with with the heart group have you noticed anything that's kind of like, oh, that's that's pretty cool, or we were right about that, or where do you see it going forward from now? Um, so, <clears throat> um, there are you know some things that we've um, called right that have been right throughout, but they weren't necessarily based on data. A lot of those things were just based on the foundations of what we knew about other viruses because a lot of what went wrong was, was using really weird new assumptions about this virus being completely different to all that had gone before. So the assumptions that it'd be spread by healthy people or the assumption that, um, that um, sorry. It's all right. My train of thought. All right. Um, so, you know, yeah, so they were just, you know, going back to basics. So things like prior immunity being something that would protect you. you know, that, that was decades and decades of, in fact, it's not decades, it's millennia of an understanding that if you've had a disease, you're not going to catch the same disease again. Mm -hmm. And that was sort of thrown out the window. And it was almost this, like, panic that, um, and that if you could think of the worst case catastrophe, we had to act as if that was going to happen. So you have to assume that everyone's susceptible and that even if they caught it, they could catch it again. And that, you know, all these people who are healthy, they're going to be spreading it. I mean, when you listen to it back like that, it's absolutely hysterical. It really was absolutely hysterical. And and so we were just trying to calmly take what we knew and, and, and shine a light on that and say, well, that just is very unlikely to be true in the end. Um, from the point of view of data, um, there are... Um, you know, stories to tell, like the massive overdiagnosis last winter, that still seems to be an issue and seems to have been shown up even more this winter because the diagnosis was much better. And, and so we didn't have that same issue. So people 
who saw this happen last winter were saying, oh, that's because of all the influenza deaths that we haven't got. You think, well, if that had been the case, we would have seen that this winter too, and we didn't. It became more accurate. Um, and in terms of more, more recent data that we've seen, I think the thing that we're really trying to get across to people as, as much as we can is what's happening in terms of heart conditions and the, the, the data from lots of sources now of um, an increase, particularly in the young, of people who are being referred for heart failure or people who've been calling ambulances for cardiac arrests um, and how that correlates very strongly with when vaccination happens. And there's a, um, the cardiac arrest data um, and actually the excess death data as well did show a rise in autumn 2020 in the young before vaccine. So there was something else going on. And I mean, it's very likely that all of the fear could have contributed to heart disease, right? You know, there are apps, there's really strong evidence of psychological factors impacting on people's atherosclerosis. And I know that doesn't sound like kind of conventional Western medicine, but the evidence is there that that's the case. So autumn 2020, this rise in young people having heart attacks was very likely policy related, but it wasn't a vaccine policy at the time. And the level at which that happened was pretty low compared with what's happened subsequently. And subsequently, we've seen it here, and the German data is really stunning. The Israeli data, you know, it, it's it's not something you can pretend it's because of something else. Um, and there was there was also not a problem at all in the young. So there's particular data that's just come out for the under 30s from the West Midlands Ambulance Service. Mm, and yeah. in the period between November 2020 and March 2021, when there was a lot of COVID, there was no increase then in cardiac call-outs for the under 30s. And then it hits April 2021, they start getting vaccinated and it goes through the roof. Yeah. And, um, you know, this, we've actually, I've actually been calling out the, the ambulance data on cardiac conditions for a year now, which is kind of upsetting because I don't think any of that's penetrated. There's been no mainstream media coverage of what's gone on in that regard for a whole year. But when you look back at the swine flu story, you know, I think you just have to keep going. You just have to keep going and it gets through eventually. And, and in the meantime, try and educate as many people as you can about the risks that they're undertaking. And obviously, the vast majority of people who were young and took this vaccine have not been harmed by it. But... That we know of. Well, no, the vast majority haven't been. The what, about the, what about the... What about the... the um... The, the issues of fertility and obviously, you know, the ACE2 receptors and the, the, the potential issues, the time bombs, the exacerbations of potential pre-existing. There are lots of hypothetical problems mm -hmm. that there's no evidence for yet. And I agree with you that hypothetical mm -hmm. problems, hypothetical harm is a reason not to intervene in a healthy person who's not particularly at risk of the disease you're trying to prevent with a vaccine that doesn't prevent the infection anyway. I mean, I completely agree with all of that logic, but I think it's too early to start saying we have these hypothetical harms. Those are still the hypothetical ones. We have harm that we have measured. There's absolutely evidence of this massive rise in myocarditis in the young. We've got this evidence of cardiac arrests, which may be related to myocarditis. It may be that it's a clotting issue, we don't know. 
we do have evidence of clotting issues with the vaccine. We have evidence of Guillain-Barre syndrome with AstraZeneca. You know, there, there are certain conditions that we do have evidence for. And, and as I said to you before, you don't need any of that to say that there were other ways that this was dealt with that, that were wrong. They were wrong regardless of whether or not it caused harm. And so, you know, when you're talking about a young person who's considering having yet another dose or getting a first dose, then the point isn't that most people are probably fine. The point is that you don't expose a healthy person to risk, especially not to prevent a disease it doesn't prevent and to prevent hospitalizations and deaths when that young person's risk of those is absolutely tiny, absolutely tiny. You don't do it, it's just the wrong thing to do. And, um, and so, and obviously your point that these risks are only some of the, these harms that we can measure and not necessarily all the harms, it's a really, really important point. And it's important that you don't ever only focus on what you can measure. You have to focus on the, the broader picture. Um, and part of that broader picture, of course, is how it's changed people's attitudes to vaccinations. You know, yeah. having this, this brutal imposition of a vaccine in an illogical way that was clearly not for the benefit of the people they were trying to vaccinate has had doing enormous harm to the children's immunization programs for conditions that where you know if you are a child and you are choosing between a vaccine or the risk of getting that you know getting measles or typhoid or diphtheria the vaccine is a much safer choice for a child um and children aren't being vaccinated the numbers they were and public health officials up until now that was basically their career you know that that's what public health was and they've just destroyed it yeah, and I, I think that's kind of obvious now, and a lot of, a lot in every every, I even feel the same. I mean, COVID came along after my lad was was jabbed, but he's five now. So when it comes to the to this, the, you know, the preschool jabs, you know, I, I understand from a clinical point of view, but from a moral point of view, and all the other bits and pieces and everything else, you, we've just lost complete trust in anything they say anymore with regards to that. So if they're going to do that, yes, I know the whole childhood immunisation program. But then you've got the other links to the uh, to the autism and other bits and pieces. I just feel that there's not been enough transparency, and this has highlighted the fact that there's been no transparency in in anything like that from 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 years ago. But it's good that I think that we're starting to raise the right questions. It's just whether they'll give us the data to make up our own minds or or keep spoon feeding us what they think they need. Well, to I, do. I think a lot of people are, are expressing it in the way that you've expressed it, and I think that's. You know, I, I have absolutely no problem with people wanting to understand more and read more. I think that that's a very, very healthy culture to be a part of, particularly if you're in healthcare yourself, you know, you, you absolutely should. But um, but I do worry that that it's gone far too far the other way and that, the you know, that that trust was really precious and they've lost it and that 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 is going to cause more harm than would ever have been caused by COVID in children. And and the, and the, and that's that's the compounding argument, isn't it? You, you know, these people that trust the government, uh, trust the doctors, and everything else that the the, the jab was going to do what they said it was, even if it didn't do that, they certainly didn't expect to put their their loved ones or youngsters potentially at more risk of something else. That's not what you go into to an immunisation yeah. program for is to potentially be put at risk at something else. 
two more things a couple couple of questions because i'm conscious of time and i know you're busy so i appreciate this um so shedding thing or not um i think it's potentially a thing i think if you read the pfizer documentation about you know their concerns around that um in terms of trying to keep people away from pregnant people when they've been vaccinated that's kind of interesting um i think it's something that um would be hard to measure but not impossible to measure so i think it's something that we will we could get data on but i think it's something we don't know at the moment yeah that, that that's the general because it was never needed to be measured because people weren't getting infected like they are now with with covid or the jab so so it never really no one had never really heard of shedding but since all this last couple of years i've been getting a lot of people ask me what's your thoughts on shedding um but prior to this, it was just like, well, your body does it anyway, it gets rid of dead particles, dead yeah. viruses and all that. You yeah, well, there is that, isn't there? Like, you know, say that there was shedding and, and so then you were inhaling some, you know, toxic proteins. Well, uh, that, you know, your body does know how to deal with these things. And, and you're protected by a mucus layer right through your respiratory system that, that mm. will sweep most of it away. And any that does manage to get through can't replicate. It's just a protein yeah okay um so two more points the first point then is so when you mentioned obviously influenza disappeared when when SARS-CoV-2 uh, appeared and then vice versa do you think that's <laughs> like a gentleman's agreement between <laughs> between viruses that's like well I'm, 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 I'm joking but it's interesting how that would happen because you is it because more people were infected with whichever strain was going around at the time. So the other strain just didn't have a chance and would kind of die out. And if so, where does it go? Because it still needs well, that. Is, yeah, it's, that is a really, really odd, odd thing that we've never seen before. And it doesn't completely make sense. And it's, you know, the, the way that viral ecology works is, you know, not so different to the rest of biology that, that there's sort of everything's living in a balance. And so you don't normally get an either or situation it's normally a balance um um so i think we might have seen something that's new you know what i was saying to you before about these things that are interesting in science that's really interesting mm. and, and it could be that we have come across something new that we've never seen before and that is important um and that that while people have tried to emphasize this as being a new virus actually the elements of the virus were you know have all been seen before um what was new about it was the way it became the dominant virus in the in the winter season over influenza um and that that's interesting hmm. okay I've, I've just thought another question and then and then that'll be the last one but this one's a bit you don't have to answer this one if you don't want to do you think it's gain of function engineer from a lab or not <laughs> that's you know that is something that I have obviously read a bit about um, and I've never dug into too deep and I've heard different people say different things and I, I haven't sort of plumped for one or the other so on the one hand there are some people who believe that really passionately mm. and um, and there is there's their evidence is all around the genetics of, of what's in there that looks odd um, but there are other people who say, well, you know, you can see the kind of buildup of changes in coronaviruses in the lead up to this, which shows that the whole sort of um, environment of coronaviruses was heading in that direction naturally anyway. 
Um, so I don't know. And, we're, and given that we know it was around in autumn as well, that the story doesn't quite fit with what with what we with, doesn't fit with the whole pangolin thing. It doesn't mm. fit with the wet market. I think that's pretty certain. Mm. But whether it fits with the leak from the Wuhan lab, I'm not really sure either, because it couldn't have been a leak for when we were told it was. And then you wonder, well, maybe somebody in the lab turns up with a nasty pneumonia and the people in the lab freak out. And this was just, everything we've seen is because the people in that lab freaked out just because one of their colleagues caught pneumonia in the community and they assumed it was a leak. Mm. Maybe. I don't know. But what I do know is that if this was natural, the response was very unnatural. And we then took the Wuhan gain-of-function lab sequence and within three hours made it into a vaccine and injected that into billions of people. Mm. I always think it's one of those things. There's lots, it's, it's the whole narrative is like the star lit sky with the stars spread all over the sky. It's really hard to kind of make any head nor tail of it. But if someone was to line the dots up into a certain pattern or a, you, you, you can see the whole, the whole kind of whole picture. Um, so last question then, we touched on this last time we spoke. And we spoke about we need to collectively we all need to be working on a on a way of breaking this sort of information to people in a means that we can have a sensible dialogue without you know it always uh descended into chaos uh what sort of starting point would advice would you give people to kind of almost encroach the conversation and and could you give any people advice on how to kind of approach it when, when talking so, to I, I will try to, but I will start by saying I have not found this very easy. Not as it. I have not managed to get through to people. So the people that I ha can have decent conversations with, I think, are people who were never swept up in it in the first place. The people who've been swept up with it in the first place, it's a really difficult conversation to have. So I'll start by saying that. Yeah. And then I'll say that people who are much better than me at this, what they're really good at is asking the most penetrating questions, just questions. Like mm. If it's all done with questions, and if you sometimes just leave that question hanging for them to just mull on, then that's enough. And it's a process, and it takes a long, long time, doesn't it, of just dropping another question, just mm. until you can kind of drip, drip, drip to get there. But it's so difficult when you've got a different view and someone knows you've got a different view to um to listen to each other properly and i really really try you know because obviously this is a two-way process as well no one's going to get through to anyone that they're not listening to right so you have to listen to what the other person's saying and and really properly listen and take it on board um and and then respond to them in a calm mature way if you want them to do that when you're questioning them and, and this is the thing and i've um, I, and i always refer to my father in this because he's, he's he's an amazing man he he is the smartest guy i know but he's been staunch global incompetence you know that's all it is it's global incompetence from from the governments and i've said to him despite everyone being in lockstep despite this despite that completely believes it's it's government incompetence so i always use him as my benchmark on who how i would approach these conversations with with those types of people but the problem 
the problem we've got to get is we are those of us that are on this side of the fence. And I don't like to say size because that's exactly what they've tried to create here. Yeah. We have a, a, a certain thought process. We're able to accept and listen to their side of the argument and and and, and kind of dilute it and, and think about it and think, okay, yeah, I understand. But they will not categorically be able to even fathom your side of the argument. And until we can get to that point where they can at least put their egos aside to 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 like you say, listen to what you're saying, not just hear you speak. You can't even have that dialogue. So until those people that have can't admit they were wrong can admit they may have been wrong, even to themselves, to, to then be allowed to allow them to have the conversations, we are going to be stuck in this perpetual limbo state, I think. Mm. I think it's definitely partly about being wrong. And I think it's also partly about being afraid. Mm. So I think while people were scared, there was no getting through to them. There was just no, nothing you could do because their re response was emotional, purely emotional. And you have to wait for the emotions to die away before you can talk to somebody rationally. And and I've seen that happen with people that I know, where their emotions have, have come under control and they started to be interested and they have started to talk about it and, and take things on board. And yeah, that's been a kind of two-year process. And, and when we have seen episodes of mass fear in the past, it takes about five years. Yeah. Which I know it's horrible, isn't it? Halfway through then. <laughs> <laughs> well, what I'll do, we'll leave it there because it's touching on two hours, and then I feel like we didn't touch. You know, every guest I've had on, I've, um, I've, I've tried don't don't make it last more than two hours because some people are saying two hours is too long, two hours is too long. But every time the conversation, it's just been not been strained. It's just natural conversation, and 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 you think, well, no, I don't want to stop now. This is this is dynamite stuff, um, and and it's really good. I think that we having these these conversations with people i'm trying to ask the questions that, that i was asking when i was sort of like doing this sort of stuff but not the menial stuff that we've already kind of getting over it's more about what we can do and where we're going where can everybody find you so i'm on twitter at claire craig path c-l-a-r-e um i'm on heart so come to the heart website which is heartgroup.org and if you scroll to the bottom, you can sign up to get our weekly bulletins, which are just usually about five short articles giving updates on what's gone on and trying to translate things into lay English and just you know, giving you a bit of data and a bit of common sense. Um, yeah, that's it, really. I'm not doing anything particularly otherwise. Good. We don't want to give everyone too much information, otherwise you'll be getting yeah. inundated with stuff, you see. So let, let's keep it quarantined to that sort of stuff. Dr. Craig, uh, thank you so much from the bottom of my heart for coming on today. Um, I hope you enjoyed yourself. I would like to get you back on again, probably for season two, so then we can go over some of the data that you've uh, you've been collating and, and hopefully we'll see some awesome patterns emerging. But I wish you all the best and I hope you continue to do the data that you're doing. Um, follow Dr. Craig on Twitter, because I do, and um, it's some really good stuff that... that, that it's not about following the big accounts. This is what I've realized. You've got to follow the smaller accounts. Not that yours is small anymore, but was when I first started following you. Um, because you all then grow together. And then and, and it's been interesting seeing um, the data that's coming out. But thank you from the bottom of my heart. I will leave you alone now. You can go about your day and carry on with stuff. All right. Thanks so much, Matt. We need to get you into heart as well. I'd love to do something like Let's that. I, that. Like, yeah, it comes full circle. Hey, I'm, I will, I, as I say to the, to, to the girls, the stuff that they've been doing behind the scenes, that was the motivation for me wanting to do this because they were still fighting discrimination in the workplace and all sorts of stuff that no one had any idea that they were doing. Um, and it's just four girls, 
four girls on their own, still working front line. And I just have the utmost respect for what they did. But after the mandate was um, was revoked, uh, a lot of steam just left everybody because, oh, we've yeah. done it. And it was like, well, no, 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 this is just the beginning. So they've been continuing to fight, but they 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 didn't lose their mojo per se, but they were a little bit stale. And then that's when I came to them and said, look, hey, I've got a mouth. I'm happy to do a podcast. I've been itching to do something. And then it's it's created a bit more of a spark and, and more motivation against people uh, for people. So I know it's been done to death and there's lots of podcasts out there, but they never they never seem to ask the right stuff or they talk too much, which is what I'm doing exactly right now. Um, <laughs> but, you know, so hopefully we can get this going and, and get some decent people. But if there's anyone you think would come on here that would be great, then obviously throw their deets my way. But I would gladly love to come and do some stuff with Hart as well. Um, it'd be nice if I could chisel out a journalistic career, who would have thought, uh, in doing stuff like this. But um, but I, I thank you so much for coming on again today. And I really, really appreciate your time. All right. All right. Thanks, Matt. No worries. Thanks. You take care. All the best. And I'll speak to you soon. All right. Brilliant. Thanks, Ben. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.